to Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. I'll be reading out of the ESV. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thanks, brother. I have a question for you. If someone were to ask you, what makes... Christianity unique among all the religions of the world, what would you say? This is rhetorical, just in case if I embarrass one of you. But what would you say if someone said, hey, what makes Christianity unique? Oh, thanks, bud. <laughs> Gotta teach you what rhetorical means. Well, a lot of times we'll say, well, Christianity is the only religion that teaches grace. And yet, in Japan, there has been found a very small, obscure sect of Buddhism. Buddhism. (laughs) You know, this morning, when I was with the high school group, I said so many words wrong. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. What's going on? I couldn't, I woke up in the middle of the night for like, for two hours, I couldn't sleep. Um, Buddhist sect. I don't think I've ever done that before. That's probably one of the bigger ones. Can I recover, church? That's the question. I shall, God helping me. There is a obscure sect of Buddhists who actually teach salvation by grace and not by human effort. Okay, well that's unsettling. Uh, That's I thought that was our claim to fame. Well, what what about a sacrificial death of Jesus? Maybe that's what makes Christianity unique. I can't get over I said that. (laughs) That was great. For our visitors, uh, that's probably strange for you. Um, I don't normally do that. Well, actually, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they believe in some form of a sacrificial death of Jesus on a stake. Okay, well, okay. What about... The resurrection of Jesus. Certainly that makes Christianity unique. Well, Mormons actually believe in a form of the resurrection of Jesus. Also, what are we going to say? What makes Christianity unique? Well, if you actually look at these different groups that I talked about, and you dig deeper, the differences on what the Bible teaches, the resurrection, grace, and the sacrificial death are very, very different. On the surface, they may sound similar, but they're very different. But still, it leaves you with this important question, what makes Christianity unique? And and this is the answer. God is triune. God is triune. The Trinity is what makes the God of the Bible unlike any other so-called God. The Trinity is actually what makes the gospel even possible. See, what, what, what I hope you'll see in this sermon is that without the Trinity, you actually don't have a really good God. You don't have a God of love. You don't have a God that you would actually want to know and have a relationship with. And yet, for most of my Christian life, I have been confused about the Trinity. In Bible college, 
at Eternity Bible College in California, I learned the minutia of the Trinity from my systematic theology textbook. And what I learned is you can't say this, because if you say that, that's modalism. And you can't say that, because if you say that, that's another heresy. And you're just like, oh, I can't say anything wrong or I'll get caught by the heresy police. And so that confusion ultimately led, led me towards embarrassment. And so if I were to talk to a skeptic or a Muslim or someone about the Trinity or, or about Jesus, and they bring up the Trinity, I just kind of like, hey, that, yeah, yeah, it's mysterious. Hey, look over there, the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel. The Trinity was actually something I was embarrassed about, if I'm honest. I was confused about it. I was like, that's just like that weird thing that I can't quite explain, and so it's something I'm going to ignore. Let's just talk about the gospel. About 11 years ago, I came across this book called Delighting in the Trinity. And if you got our bulletin, you got it in the uh, email, this is my recommended book of the month. This is in my top five of all time. And it changed my life. And the reason why it changed my life is because it didn't just explain the Trinity more clearly, but actually helped me see how essential the Trinity is and that without the Trinity, we have no gospel, we have no good news, and Christianity is, is not good news to you or me. It actually led me to a place where I was happy that God was triune. It made me happy that God was triune. I was proud that God was triune, no longer embarrassed. And so my hope is that God, by his spirit, would help me preach this word in such a way that would fill your hearts with joy and gladness that God is triune. No longer ashamed if you were like me. No longer confused. Maybe a little confused, but more clarity in your heart that leads to joy. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, you're skeptics, I'm really proud of you for being here. That's very bold for you to come here. I pray that as I preach the word of God, that your hearts will be warmed and that you would actually see that without God being triune, that nothing in the world makes sense. And that your heart would be strangely stirred to know this God because he wants to know you and he actually already knows you but before we jump into this let's kind of review right now we're in this series called encountering God in the first week I preached on the knowability of God the pursuit of knowing God and, and I just want to run through a couple of things briefly let's let's see who am I going to pick on okay I'll just pick on Michael all right are you a theologian Yes, right? So one of the things I, I talked about is everyone here is a theologian. Most of us aren't professional theologians, but all of us are theologians. What do I mean by that? Everyone is a theologian because a theologian comes up with thoughts, assumptions, ideas about what God is like, what he likes, what he hates, what he cares about, what he wants from you. That's what doing theology is. The moment you ask, what is Jesus like, you are doing theology, you can't just say like, oh, I'm all about Jesus and spirituality and um, intimacy, but I, I don't really get into theology. The moment you actually start defining what Jesus is like, you're a theologian. And you're either a good theologian or a bad theologian. A good theologian thinks rightly about God and lives rightly in light of that. But how do you do that? How can you be a good theologian? Go to seminary, go to Bible college? Well, that helps or that can help. But the best way to do it, the most fundamental way to be a good theologian is allowing God to tell you what he is like and receiving him as he is. Not as you want him to be or hope him to be, 
or your experiences tell you and inform you how he actually is, but let God tell you through his word what he actually is like because he has disclosed his heart and his character in this word and in his son Jesus to us. All of us here hate when people mischaracterize us, right? Misquote us, make assumptions about us. They're like, they don't even know me. How dare they think that of me? And yet, it is so hard for us to give that common courtesy to God. God is the most mischaracterized, misquoted person in the universe. Constantly, people are making judgments about him without merit. Remember, A.W. Tozer, we've highlighted three weeks ago, three weeks now in a row, said that what you think about God in the innermost part of your heart is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. If I could crawl into your heart in some non-creepy way and I could see how you actually believe God to be like, every single part of your life would make complete sense. Everything would make sense. Oh, that's why they do that. That's why they don't do that. That's why they worship like that or that's why they don't worship and they look like they're miserable. (laughs) Your conception of God, not intellectually merely, but in the depths of your heart tells you everything about your life because it, it, it dictates everything about what your life will be. And secondly, why it's so important to know God rightly is because you were made to know him and represent him. You were made in his image. So he is your creator. And if you don't know him, you're lost. I don't care how many personal inventory, uh, personality tests you take. You don't know who you are unless you know your creator. Better you know him, the more you know who you are. So my call for all of us was to give our lives to know this God because he has already made himself known at great pains to himself. And he already knows you and he wants you. That's good news. And then last week, Pastor Ross preached on the holiness of God. I will not do justice, but if you don't understand God is holy, you don't know God. So if you missed both of them, please go back and listen to them because they all build upon each other. So finally, our topic, God is triune. What do we mean by this? If you go to our website, there's a tab that says our convictions, and we say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about these essential truths. So look at this, this slide here. Would you read this out loud with me? Uh, Especially if you're a member, if not, if you're a visitor, you just listen along. We believe that there is one living and true God. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain some of these aspects, not, but not fully all of them. We don't have time for that. It, it is so important for me to stress that the Trinity is not something that we are trying to impose upon God's word, but something that progressively God has revealed about himself from his word. The phrase Trinity is actually not found in the Bible, but it's a helpful name to embody something the Bible teaches. So to the Bible, now we go, because if it's not here, it's not true. So there are numerous passages that reveal the Trinity, and some that you'll find are so clear, it's undeniable, and some others are a little bit more obscure and not clear in themselves in isolation, but if you look at them with all the other ones, they become clear. 
I'm going to highlight a few texts throughout the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and I want to stress the word few. This is not an exhaustive teaching on the Trinity. This will not satisfy you if you uh, do not believe that God is a Trinity. If you'd like to have that conversation, I'd be delighted to um, offline. But my hope is to help those of you here who were like me, who were you affirm that God is Trinitarian, but it kind of embarrasses you, it kind of confuses you, and it doesn't delight you. That's my focus this morning, is to give us a big picture of what God is like in the Bible, using some passages quickly, and then really focusing on why it's so essential that God is triune and why that's good news for us today. So, Old Testament first. If you had only the Old Testament and didn't have access to the New Testament, you would not be able to come up with a complete picture of who the triune God is. However, it doesn't mean you don't see the Trinity there. Alex Kearney, during Bible prep or sermon prep this week, shared an illustration from B.B. Warfield about 100 years ago. The Old Testament is like a richly furnished room that's dimly lit. And as light comes and pours into that room, you will start to see more clearly things that are there, but they're not just appearing. They were always there. You just couldn't see them. And so it is with the Trinity. You see the Trinity and seed forms dimly in the Old Testament. You're like, huh, what is that? That's strange. That's interesting. And then as the Bible progressively reveals who God is, you see more clearly what was always there. So that's, that is what we see in the Old Testament. Let me show you the first verses in the Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2. It'll be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can flip there so you can see. Notice the two agents. And again, there's so much to be said about each verse. I can't do justice to them. I'm going to just highlight some important pieces. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2. Notice the two agents here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see two agents here. You see the Spirit of God, and you see God. And then, going down just a few verses, verse 26, then God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We'll stop there real quick. We see God speaking about himself in a plural way. What is that about? Who is he speaking to? Let us? Well, he's not probably, some people think he's speaking like, like Queen, of, Queen of England, you know, a royal we, but that didn't really exist at the time. And some people say, well, he's talking about the angels, the heavenly courts. But let me ask you a question. Are you made in the image of angels? No. So what's going on here? Well, we're not exactly sure at this point, but something's going on here. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God primarily spoken in a singular way, but here and there you see a plural picture. It's not just God, and he's a little bit more complex, a little more interesting than we thought. And these are little glimpses. They're like little buds that are starting to, uh, little seeds that are budding. You're like, I'm not sure what that is. And over time, we see more fully what's going on there. And so in the New Testament, we're seeing it. And John Chapter 1, he's using Genesis language, and we see something a little bit clearer. John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, sounds like Genesis 1, and the Word was with God. So we got a Word and we got a God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, 
was not anything made that was made. And then skip down a few verses to verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, and it gives us a little bit more definition about who the word is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we have the word who's actually a son. And we have a father. So we have a father and we have a son right here. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit in a minute. We have a father and a son. And notice, it says this very emphatically, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. If you were to read the Greek here, it is crazy emphatic, just repeating itself to make the point clear that the son was never created. In fact, everything that was ever created, me, you, everything, is actually made through Jesus. He's the uncreated son and the one who all things in the universe are created together. So we have a father and we have a son, and they're two persons and two beings, but, it's, but maybe one being. It's kind of confusing here. And later on in John chapter 10, verse 30, I almost just said heresy, but John chapter 10, verse 30, he, Jesus says, I and the father are one. And then in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to them, he's talking to Philip, one of his disciples, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but my Father who dwells in me does his work. So we have this strange, mysterious language that that, that we have two persons, and yet there's a oneness in them that is beyond what we would normally see or think. And then we have other passages like the one that Scott read, Matthew chapter 3. Then in other passages, we see three persons simultaneously in the same place at one time. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, please. And when Jesus was baptized, so Jesus, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, Spirit of God, resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so you have the Father speaking, you have the Spirit descending, and the Son receiving, all simultaneously in the same picture. And yet, they're more one than we even know. Look at Matthew 28, verse 18. Remember, this is a sprint we're going through. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay, notice this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three are listed here. Dr. Gary Brashear puts it like this. Is name here singular or plural? Singular or plural? Singular, name. Names is plural, right? I'm not trying to trick you. Is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that singular or plural? That's pl- plural. So, so name is singular, attributed to all persons who are plural, and yet it's one name. So there's three and yet one. Is God one or is he three? Yes, one name, three persons. And there are so many more passages, especially ones that highlight the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I feel like I'm shortchanging the Holy Spirit, and that's saddening to me. But read Forgotten God by Francis Chan if you're interested in more of that. 
But just because you can see something in the Bible doesn't mean it fully unsettles the contradiction that it may feel, logically. Uh, Some Muslims and Jews will argue that the Trinity is veiled polytheism. It's our sneaky way to be polytheists. We worship three different gods, and we're just all making something up that they're one. It sounds like a contradiction. It really does. Let's just be real. It sounds contradictory, but it's actually not. It's more, better put, a paradox. What's a paradox? A paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. And in fact, in our situation, it is true. It sounds off, but it's actually not. And let me, let me explain that. I'm really helped by Nabil Qureshi. Do you guys know Nabil? Nabil died not long ago. Uh, he's very precious to me. He was a former Muslim, became a Christian radically, and was super, super helpful and encouraging for me. And he says this. First, you have to understand what is a being. A being, next slide please, is that quality or essence that makes you what you are. And a person is that quality or essence that makes you whom you are. Let me, let me explain this a little bit more. So what am I here? What am I? I'm a human being. You're a human being. Who am I? Sam Choi. That's my personhood. I'm Sam Choi, but my being is I'm a human. In this room, all of us here share the same being, I think, right? But we're different persons. God is not like us. He's the only being that has three persons. For us creatures, humans, we are one being and we have one person. They're inseparable. God is not like us. It would be contradictory if I were to say that God is one being and three beings. See, that? See how that's contradictory? Same category, mixing them up. But, but God is one being and three persons. No one else is like him. It is Difficult to comprehend this, I I want to admit. But let me just ask you this. If God is truly the uncreated one who created all of this, what mind could create all this and you and me and sunsets and Grand Canyon, all the things that we see? If God is that God, wouldn't it logically follow that this God would be beyond our categories, our mental categories? Wouldn't it logically follow that This kind of God that would create the uncreated one forever would be different in ways that would be surprising to our finite logic? If it wasn't the case, then he's not much more of a God than a Superman, a little bit better than us. And that is our challenge as we're constantly trying to make connections with God with ourselves. And these connections with our world to him just don't fit. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? We are talking about a being that is beyond us. This is why most analogies break down. Many of you guys have maybe heard God is like, the Trinity is like H2O. Anyone heard that before? Right? He's like ice. Michael Reeves jokes, you warm him up a little and he becomes sunny. And then you heat him up and he becomes spiritual gas, right? 
And all of these analogies, though they can be helpful at times, they all woefully fall short because we're talking about a being that is beyond our normal categories. And trying to stuff him into our categories creates all kinds of problems. So for the rest of the sermon, I want to show you why the Trinity is so important and why it's so wonderful that God is a Trinity. I am fully aware that I did not do a comprehensive teaching on the Trinity just now. If you have more questions, I'd love to talk to you. But now, I want to talk to those of you here who understand and believe mentally, but your heart still disconnects from God. So first of all, God's character is at stake if he's not triune. Let me ask you this question. What would God be like if he wasn't Father, Son, Holy Spirit? What would God be like if he was by himself, solitary? What kind of words do you think about? From eternity's past, always, he's the uncreated one, but he's just by himself. What does this God make you think of? What kind of words come to your mind? What's that? I, I think words like lonely, needy. A cosmic leech who wants to get things from you. He needs a creation to play with, to be entertained by, to serve him like the God of the Babylonians, Marduk. I need slaves to worship me and serve me. I'm an egomaniac and I need people to stroke my ego. I need people to worship me. I need someone to love because I'm alone. And there's probably, cue all the songs of loneliness and love right now. I need someone. When you think about this solitary, alone, uncreated God, what would motivate that God to create us? Well, it couldn't be love because he's not loved by himself. He, he doesn't have anyone to love, and so he can't inherently be love. So he needs us. So this ultimately doesn't sound like good news, does it? doesn't sound like a very appealing God, and yet it's the God that many of us imagine him to be like, a very needy God. Michael Reeves jokes about this in one of his sermons. He says it like this. Um, would you like a big blood-sucking leech in your life? He's called God. You can give up everything for him or go to hell. And that is, disturbingly, how a lot of people think God is actually like. Just this cosmic, killjoy, big brother. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you are awake. He knows when you are bad or good. And he's just watching you and to nail you when you do something wrong. That is what God is like. And, and so therefore you need to worship him. And therefore he has some serious PR problems if you want to be an evangelist. But to actually understand what God is actually like and his motivations beyond creation, let's go back a little bit before time was a thing. What was God doing before he created anything? What was God doing before he created anything? Now, that, that sounds like a weird question. Like, how could you know, Sam? That sound, sounds like something that so, someone who has a lot of time on their hands would wonder about. But actually, we don't have to wonder because Jesus tells us Look at John 17, 24. Would you read this out loud when it comes up? John 17, 24. Father, also, whom you have given me may be with me.
He, he did what? He loved Christ. He loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Whenever scripture talks about foundation of the world, it's talking about before time, before anything was created. God, the Father, was loving his Son. So what is the answer? What was God always doing before creation? Loving the Son. Father was loving the Son by the Holy Spirit. Foundational to who God is is a father, is family-like. It's not as that there's something more essential at God's being, and then you kind of throw a little father on it, and he can put it on like a hat. No, it's essentially who he is, a family, relational. That is at the heart of what God is like. He is more than that, but he's definitely not less than that. What does a good father do? Nurturing, life-giving, caring, adoring, loving, so much more. And this can be so beautiful. Maybe some of your hearts are stirred and other your hearts, other, other ones of you right now, your hearts are pained because our, many of us here have complicated histories with our fathers, right? Fathers are often one of the most painful sore spots in many of our histories in our past. Michael Rees put it like this. God the Father is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He is not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the feelings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, others do a better job reflecting the devil. That is so hard to overcome if you have a deeply painful, complicated relationship with your father or your absent father. But remember, God is not like that. All fathers are just dim, dim reflections of what God is like, the original father. So how does this change how we understand God? If God is a community, father, love, loving the son by the Holy Spirit, then it changes everything. Let me share another way how this changes everything. I said this again earlier before, but I want to say it again more clearly. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In two weeks, I'm going to preach a sermon on the love of God, so we'll go deeper into this. But to touch on it briefly, if God was solitary, then you could not say that he is inherently loving. But because to love, you have to have someone to love. But because God is triune, he was loving from eternity's past. In the next verse, we actually see motivation on why God does what he does. Look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see, because God is eternally loving, he then is motivated both to create us and rescue us. Even more than this, look at John chapter 17. We're gonna just be flying through a couple of John passages. John 17, verse 23, if you're taking notes. Would you read this out loud? This is so sweet. I in them and you in me.
Oh my. The logic of this passage is this. The Father has loved the Son eternally. Then the Father sends his Son in love to the world. Why? So that the world, those who trust in Christ, may receive the same kind of love that the Father has for the Son. And not just to be loved like that, but to be with him forever. See, the triune God was so abundantly full of love. So it's imagine like a fountain that is overflowing with love that it just has to overflow. There's just not, you just can't contain it. It overflows and cascades into the creation of the world and cascades again into loving us sinners. Not because he has to, because he gets to, he wants to, and he wants to share that love with us. He wants to bring us into the love he's already have, had. How do we receive this kind of love? Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See the insanity of God here. He doesn't just overflow his love for those who trust in him. He then dwells in us to, the, to make that happen. This is not some distant God, but a God who says, I'm going to inhabit your hearts and share my love that way. This is as close as you can get. But let me take it at another level. Not only is the love of God at stake if God is not triune, but also the gospel. All of us here, all of us here, including me, especially me, have forsaken the one who we were created for. All of us have our hearts sunken inside, loving created things and loving self over the creator. We are defying and betraying our very purpose of living. And yet... Though we deserve eternal separation because that's what we want, because when we're loving things outside of God, we're actually communicating to God, this is what I actually want. I don't want you, I want these things, or that person, or that career. You're basically forecasting what you want for eternity. You don't want God. And though that is your rightful destination, that's my rightful destiny, is eternal separation of God, there is good news. The most famous passage in the Bible, well-known, John chapter 3, verse 16 talk about it more in two weeks, but for God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, or only begotten son, that whoever believes in Christ should not perish, but have eternal life. So God, stubbornly and lovingly persistent in his love, was not content with his creation being sabotaged, but then created a rescue plan out of an overflow of the love he already had in the Trinity so that whoever would put their trust in him would have eternal life. And later on in John, in the Gospel of John, we learn eternal life is what? Knowing God. So eternal life is not something that you go to one day, but eternal life starts the day you start to actually know the living God and that extends forever into eternity. It's those who know God forever are those who are in heaven. It is just silliness when we talk about, like, what do you have to do to get to heaven? It's not... What do you have to do? It's who do you know? Because whatever you, who you know is, will extend forever. Eternal life starts today or can. 
So God's great rescue plan is to bring us back into loving relationship with a triune God. But this comes at a cost. And this is where I believe the Trinity shines forth again. Listen, if God does not provide the perfect son to be our sacrifice, who would have to provide one? We would. And if we would have to provide our own sacrifice, then God wouldn't be very gracious, would he? So gracious of you for providing your thing, right? No. God would not be gracious if he made us provide our own substitute, our own payments. But even more, who among us could actually successfully, successfully provide a sacrifice worthy of the sins of all the world? Who is worth worthy to be a substitute that all the world's sins could be put upon him and be worthy to be accepted by a righteous, inflexible, just God? No one. No one except all of us dying for our own sins. That's the, that would be the only acceptable outcome of that situation. And yet, this God provides his son, sends his one and only son, lovingly, heartbreakingly, and the son delightfully, willingly, dies as the sacrifice, the substitute for you and me, for our decision to choose us over him to choose our way of love, our girlfriend or boyfriend, or our idol, our career, our self-love over God. He, Jesus, willingly takes that punishment for us. We often think about salvation is that God is good and holy and we are bad. So we need to be good enough to be in his good graces. And in some sense, that's true. That is absolutely true. And praise be to God that we have a perfect righteousness of Jesus. And yet, this is categorically the wrong, wrong category to think about salvation. It's the wrong goal. The goal of salvation is not you're bad, God wants you to do good things. Be good and then he'll like you. No, no, no. Foundational and the goal of salvation is that God, this triune God, wants to restore relationship with you and adopt you as one of his own. See, if you start thinking about salvation in terms of adoption, that changes the categories. Just like none of you here could ever come to me and say, what could I do to be your son? You just can't. It's just the wrong category. What could I pay? You couldn't pay to be my son. You couldn't do enough to be my son. We're talking about the wrong goal in the wrong way. But if you fundamentally understand the gospel as God rescuing us to be restore relationship and become family with him, then it changes everything. Then it's grace. Then it's all about love and no effort can make you a son. You've been adopted by love and grace. And let's look at Romans 8. We're, we're about to land the plane. Romans 8, 15. This, this verse right here, when I meditated on it like 12 years ago, changed my life. Healed so many father wounds I had. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is Apostle Paul talking. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, is, is Paul being sexist here? Why is he saying sons? Why not children? Well, who else said Abba, Father? Look at Mark 14, 36. Some of you already said it. Jesus is in the garden in Gethsemane. He says this, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what 
you will. So, so Aramaic is rarely used in the New Testament, but it's used here because this is the way Jesus spoke to his father. And what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 is that you get that same, same kind of access, that same kind of love, that you get to relate with God the Father like Jesus relates with him. So women here, why are you called from the Bible sons of God? It's not about gender. It's about place. It's about privilege. You have the same standing as the son of God. Just like I'm the bride of Christ. It's more about God trying to help us understand these divine mysteries that he's calling us into and rescuing us and wooing us and inviting us to join. You are a son of God if you're trusting in Jesus in the same position as God's own son. Loved like God loves his son. That, that is a lifetime to understand and receive. So, if you are here and you're not sure you know the love of the Father, you don't know the Son like this, you're not surrendered to him as being your great love, you're chasing other loves, the good news is God has made a way, a great pain to himself for you to be with him forever. And if you're not sure you have him, I'd love to pray with you today. I'd love for you to come up afterwards. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you on wherever you are in your journey. But I hope, church, that you have seen with me from the scriptures that God being triune is not some academic, stuffy topic, but for everyday theologians like you and me. It's not something to be embarrassed about, but rather delighted in. God being triune makes the gospel possible. It makes God's character sweet and shine. It's the bedrock of our faith and what makes Christianity truly unique and the hope to all the world. 